This week, Comics in Motion has an excellent offer exclusively for our listeners. TKO Comics is revolutionizing the comic industry. They have creator-owned series from heavy hitters like Garth Ennis, Jeff Lemire, Joshua Desart, Roxanne Gay, and many more. If you go to tkopresents.com slash discount slash motion20 and use the code motion20 at checkout, you'll receive a 20% discount exclusively for Comics in Motion listeners. That's tkopresent.com slash discount slash motion20 and use the promo code motion20. Happy reading. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Indie Comics Spotlight, the show where we spend time looking at an ongoing series or graphic novel from a company other than the big two. The hope here is that we can do a deep dive on an indie comic you may have missed or give you a chance to talk about one of your favorites with us on social media afterwards. I'm your host, Tony Farina of DC Comics News and Fantastic Universes. I've been reading comics since I was 12, and while I love a good superhero battle, I gravitate towards indie comics and standalone graphic novels because they give artists a chance to connect with readers in different ways and tell stories they may not have been able to tell with traditional comics or traditional novels. I hope that you enjoy the show. Why, hello there. I'm Seth Singleton, and I'm here to tell you about Mad Pup, a Harley Quinn cast. Harley Quinn? Harley fucking Quinn? What have we learned from this crazy show? Making bat shark repellent relevant since 1966. Oh, look, Gogurt. And we've gone completely off the rails. I hear the bat signal. Shut up and battle me, Nards. I definitely do not fuck bats. In need of an adult-sized nemesis. Humans make good fertilizer. You can't fuck with Lois Lane. For fuck's sake. I'm a damn good cop. Lot of lasers. Mmm. Educational and informative. The DC Comics News Podcast Network presents Mad Love, the Harley Quinn cast. (laughs) Back to you, Seth. So, tell us your thoughts. We'd love to hear from everyone out there. Or not. That's really up to all of you. Fuckers. Well, my guest today is, uh, is the final member of the OG... DC Comics News podcast team that I have managed. I haven't gotten Kendra on yet. Brad Felicki. Brad, thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Now, and again, my timeline is, is messed up. So you have been pretty much since the beginning of this new, like when the DC Comics News podcast first started, it was just Josh talking by himself. And once the team format started, you've been on it pretty much since the beginning, right? Yes. Yes. I jumped at the opportunity. I yeah. just love the idea on the podcast. Yeah, yeah, and I love that show. And so we'll talk a little bit about that now and a little more at the end. But um, so, so you obviously are at DCN, you're on the podcast, you write over there. So tell everybody, first of all, what you do over there, and then give everybody kind of your comic book background, what your origin story is, what was your first comic, if you can remember it. Um, you know, just talk a little bit about that, because you're the, anytime somebody comes on for the first time, we want the listeners to know your bona fides. Sure, sure. I, uh, I write news and uh, reviews for DC Comics News. Uh, you know, how I got into comics, uh, I was in the second grade running in the fall leaves on the playground. <laughs> I happened to glance down just at the right moment and I saw a little G.I. Joe action figure in the leaves and I just happened to see it. And 
it kind of ended up being one of those moments that seems trivial at first, but that really kind of impacts your life because there was something about it. I picked up the figure and I became a fan of G.I. Joe and I got all the action figures. Nice. Uh, so, yeah, and, and it kind of set me on my pop culture journey, I suppose. And I was in uh, the little, I, I grew up in a small town in Ohio and, and um, it, I was in the little pharmacy that they had in town and they had comic books. Um, and they sold them to pharmacies. They don't do that anymore, which is a shame. Yeah, but yeah. I happened to notice, and I happened to notice that in the spinner rack of comics, there was a GI Joe comic, and I was like, "Oh, what, what is this about?" And it was sixty cents. I picked it up. I it was issue ten, and I read it. Loved. I kind of became an instant fan of the medium, and then I started picking up Spider-Man and, uh, and X-Men. And until this day, Larry Hammond's run on G.I. Joe and Chris Claremont's 80s run on Uncanny X-Men are two of my favorite kind of you know, runs from that, from that era. And it is something that I still love to go back and, and reread. So that kind of started me on my comic book journey. Uh, and then, you know, over time, I, I, I've had phases. Um, I, I collected from like 1982 to 1989, which was coincidentally when I got my first girlfriend. Uh, <laughs> maybe a lot of people that happens to. Uh, <laughs> and and my, second, my second wave of comic collecting started uh, with, the, with um, the launch of uh, Image Comics. Uh, oh. I, I like the idea of being you know, there for the start of a new universe that seemed to be really catching people's imaginations. And that lasted maybe for a year or two. And then it was things like the comic we're going to be talking about today, Preacher, that brought me into kind of my, my third wave of comic collecting uh, when, when I was in college. And that lasted until about the time I moved to New York City. And then the final wave, which I'm still in now, and it's never going to end, is um, I, I was selling some CDs at, uh, at a CD store in um, South Jersey. And I noticed that in their used DVD, they had a Buffy the Vampire season one for really cheap. And I thought, well, you know, I've always served the show was out. I became hooked on Buffy. And around 2005 is when um, Joss Whedon started his uh, back in the comics hardcore, and I've, I've been collecting again ever since. So that's kind of that's kind of my history with uh, with comics. Nice, yeah. Buffy's um, my favorite show still. Um, in the history of the world. So I actually saw the original movie in the theater, the one with Kirstie Swanson and Luke Perry um, in the theater. And when the show came out, and I loved it, and I know it was cheesy and silly and whatever, but I loved that movie. And then when the show started, um, I was just out of college. Um, and it was, on, you know, it was on the WB. And uh, where I lived, I didn't have cable, but we had free TV, you know, we had an antenna. And so that was on, oh man, I, I, that was it. And that was back, you know, I had to like physically stick the VHS tape in to record it. 
and set the time. Yeah. And, and, and so, yeah, no, Joss's uh, dark, dark Horse run on Buffy was fantastic because, you know, he picked up, he didn't want the show to end, right? That's the thing. He had these other stories. Yeah. So that was yeah. cool to see. But his reboot, I actually cover for DCN, the, the new Whedonverse uh, boom, where it's like Buffy in modern time, or Buffy with cell phones. Which, yeah, you know, right. Reading those. Really good. And actually, just, just last week, um, I had uh, Gleb Melkinoff, who is the artist for the Angel series over there. Boom, he was just on. Oh, so yeah. We talked nice. about that, yeah, because I think that Angel series is um, great and what he's doing there. And, of course, Brian Edward Hill. Um, I think I probably said his name more than any other name on my show since I've started, because he's, <laughs> like, I think the top three best working comic writers currently. I, I just, he's, you know, everything he does, you know, he's edgy. He does American Carnage. He does Angel. You know, he's yeah. Oh, American Carnage is great. I mean, wasn't that insane? I mean, American yeah. Carnage. It's, that's, you know, that's like the last, end, and that's a great, that's a great segue for us to talk about our, the, the topic we're going to cover, because American Carnage is kind of the last Vertigo series, right? Um, yeah. It's, it's all, yeah. it's all in the DC universe now, where, so we're doing a, a Vertigo um, book, because in my opinion, except for Sandman, because in Sandman, Wesley Dodd is in there, and he goes to Arkham Asylum. Most of the Vertigo titles are, are not in the DC universe. To me, those are independent comics that DC comics happen to sell. Um, but now with the black label, it's kind of in the DC universe. Yeah, I was really, I have mixed feelings about that. I, I'm really bummed to lose Vertigo because Vertigo has brought me some, I mean, Sandman, oh. Sandman and Preacher are two of my absolute, absolute favorite. Not only... Uh, comic books, not and not even books, but stories in general. I think those are two of my absolute favorite stories I've ever ever read in, in any medium. They're just yeah. they're just incredible, and they're epic, and they cross they cross um, you know time and space, and they they stand the test of time. And um, of course, there's the preacher TV show, which we can touch on a little as we get towards the end. Um, I, I've not seen all of it. I think I've only seen the first few seasons. Um, so we'll talk about that too. But yeah, so this when Preacher came out for Vertigo, it was really right in the middle of when Vertigo really, truly, if you didn't know it was a DC comic, you'd have no way to know. It was really, I think, an independent comic line in Preacher written by Garth mm -hmm. and drawn by Steve Dillon um, was, was just... Well, it was just bananas. So um, before we get into kind of what it is and everything, you had mentioned this kind of was part of a wave that brought you back into comics when you were in college. So how did you come across um, Preacher the first time? Do you, did you get the floppies or did, was it in trades? You know, how is it that you... You know, I, I, I remember walking in a comic shop and seeing the very first issue and the cover was so striking. And I picked it up and glanced through it, but I didn't, I didn't buy it. And, you know, a few months down the line, I was, uh, I, I was talking to, you know, one of my best friends and he, he was still reading comics and he said, Oh, you, you got to check out Preacher. And he kind of went over a little bit of the story points. Uh, well, that, that sounds interesting. I should have bought that first issue. So I, I went to the comic shop and by that time it was uh, the first trade had come out and I picked that up and that I was able to pick up the back issues to that point. And then I started through uh, and just buying the comics as they came out 
every month and I was, I was just hooked. And, um, you know, once, you know, years, years later, I, I did a purge of my comics and uh, I did sell most of those issues, but I went out and got the entire uh, trade collection and, and reread it again and just loved it as much as I did the first time. And that was, that was probably uh, maybe 14 years ago. Um, so I, I now have all nine trades and I was kind of glued up going through them and rereading some of them, you know, preparing for this. And, and I just love it every bit as much as I did the first time. So there was just something that drew me into that story at that point that I, I was just hooked. I couldn't wait to pick up the new issues as they, as they came out. Yeah. So this is mid nineties, right? This is 95 when Preacher first came out. Right. And, uh, yeah. Yeah. And, and I think you'd mentioned the image revolution. And I think what we see is vertigo real vertigo is the response to, I mean, vertigo existed, but when the image revolution happened, DC realized, you know, Karen Berger, who is of course a genius and mm -hmm. a queen and we all owe, we who yeah. uh, uh, comics that are, when I say adult comics, I don't mean like porn. I mean, comics that are written for adults. Right. Um, we owe it. We owe so much to her. Um, and she she created the British invasion, as it were, bringing all of those 2000 AD people to Vertigo. And really, um, I think as a nice counterweight to Image, because I'm with you, I like Image too. And I think Image now, modern day Image, is much more akin to that mid 90s Vertigo, with, you know, Spawn still is there and Savage Dragon is still there. But that original Vertigo is really superheroes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The original image, excuse me, it was for superheroes, where now there's still some superhero stuff in image, but it's, you know, all bets are off with what you're going to get from them now. And I think right. Vertigo yeah. gave us storytelling. Like you said these are stories. They're not just comics. Yeah, exactly. I got into image because it was, you know, I, was, I maybe was in more innocent age back then, but um, I was thinking in terms of how cool it would have been to be around to pick up Action Comics number one or Fantastic Four number one, you know? Oh, man, and no. it felt like that, that could have been those moments with Spawn number one and Wildcats number one and things like that. So it was part of being there at the beginning and the collector's mentality. When I got into to Vertigo, it was because I wanted, I wanted good stories. And they they delivered you know more often than not and you know as far as image kind of taking over for for vertigo and kind of taking that place and culture that's totally true uh i i kind of compared it to tv in a way that you know you you have your mainstream comics and those are like your network your big network tv then you have your vertigo which is like your hbo's but Image kind of takes up that space where like AMC uh, or FX kind of exists in that level between totally things that, that are adult, you know, you, you know, you can curse and things like that. And, and now Image is, is more and more in line with becoming that HBO kind of, kind of feel. Uh, you know, I, I think that when I see an Image title Number one, it, it always picks my curiosity because they are telling very interesting stories uh, these days. So yeah, I, I totally agree and see where you're coming from with that. 
Yeah, and I think, I think that's really smart what you're saying. I love that comparison that is really genius about the different networks. I think that'll make people really understand it. Um, where Dark Horse is kind of more the, what you're talking about, the AMC and FX. They're still, they're still doing edgy stuff over Dark Horse, there's no doubt, but it's, it's, um, it's, not, quite, it's not quite as extreme, the Dark Horse uh, titles. I mean, you know, Sin City was pretty extreme, I suppose. <laughs> but uh, again, that was, you know, that's, that's a different time too. Yeah, what I like about, um, about uh, this, about this run of Preacher in particular, this, this series, um, is I'm never sure, and, and I think this is the overarching comment, I wanted to start with this, even though we'll break down the three main characters before, I guess, you know, if we could talk about the saint, we could talk about our ass face, but um, the, 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 obviously the, the big three here, kind of the trinity, as it were, which obviously I think is pun intended. Um, mm -hmm. My overarching question with Preacher is, and this is as you were rereading them, and the question we need to address is, is it satire or is it, does it ever to you get too close to farce? Because I feel like there's some things that happen in the book where I was like, well, was that just because you wanted to see if you could get away with it? Um, as opposed to I'm being edgy and making you uncomfortable because I'm telling you a story that you need to hear and it's satirical look, not just at religion, but comic books and mythology, there's all of those things that are happening in here. So um, this is kind of, you know, where do you, where do you fall when you come to this? Has, has there ever been anything in Preacher where you were like, that was too much? Uh, no, um, I think it all serves, uh, it all serves a purpose. I think when I first got into the story, the whole farce and seeing what you could get away with was part of the charm of the story in a way. Uh, what, what crazy stuff is he gonna do next? But they're rereading it, you realize there is a lot of, uh, of things he's trying to say philosophically about religion. Sure. Yeah. And I think, I mean, I mean, that's an obvious thing, but I think that, that um, it, it, it seems like this, the whole series was a definite personal struggle for Garth Ennis. This is things that he was dealing with in his own mind, um, struggles with faith, uh, morality, and, and it brought in everything that, that he loves. It brought in his love of New York City. It, it brought in his Irish uh, heritage. It brought in uh, his love of Westerns. And the fact that he could do that and presented in a way that is so extreme, the farce seemed to push the points home to me. Um, and it came from a real honest place. So even if it was so much farce, it was still honest and uh, trying to be a true reflection of what he was trying to say. Yeah, I think that's right. I, I think, right, because he's clearly digging. And, that, and that's, that's where I'm getting at, right? That was my big thing is, is I'm rereading it. It's like, okay, well, there's a line sometimes where um, are you being extreme just to be, are you being gross just to be gross or, or, or does this have intent? And I agree. And I think, I think he served, this is not always served well uh, because he gets away with too much. I think because he's Garth Ennis. So they're like, whatever. But when he's got the right partner and I think Steve Dillon 
is the only partner for this, right? I think that Steve mm -hmm. Dillon, some of the stuff that, that they do in this book is really, really out of control. And I can only imagine what the script must have looked like and how Dylan then can instill shock us in some ways, but draw it in a way that is really rooted in reality so that it doesn't seem cartoonish and silly. The, the, the blood splatters and the nasty things that happen are drawn in such a realistic way. I mean, Steve Dillon isn't like, it's not like he's a photorealistic artist, but he, he could be. <laughs> I mean, you know, there's, there's like, yeah. he, um, he's got that kind of skill. And the, the way that the things happen, they have texture. And he, so I think having the right artist telling a really kind of intense story helps us as a viewer, as a reader, say viewer, because I'm with you, it's like almost cinematic, this book. Um, it is like you said, his love of Western comes right through. And this is like, this is just, you know, it, it feels, it feels so three-dimensional to me. And I think that's a, that's a testament to Dylan. What did you think? What do you think? Are you a Steve Dylan fan beyond this? Or, or do you think, do you think this book could have been done by anybody else? You know, it's funny that you should say that because as I was, you know, rereading, I, I thought to myself two things. I would love to see the scripts and it could not be done by any by any other artist. Um, I'm really, as far as the script go, I'm really curious because I think Dylan has a really good way, or had a good way since he passed away, sadly. But I, I yeah. think that he had a really cool use of the camera, if you will. Yeah. Uh, as far as what he was drawing, uh, there's just certain certain ways he reveals things, like when. Um, there was a scene uh, where Sheriff Root and, and Tulip have their guns against each other's head and, and Tulip pulls her gun away and, you know, Root is thinking, oh, you're scared of me. But then it turns out that Santa Killers is behind him and he says, no, she's not scared of you. And just yeah. the way that, that that scene worked was so, I was reading that, I was like, man, I want to know if that was Dylan or if that was Ennis writing that way because that was such a cool use of, of the camera. And I always, I, 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 sometimes I like to see comics when they're told cinematically as a cheap way to make a movie. And that was a, a great example of great storytelling as in a comic in that way. And uh, Dylan has such a, I don't want to say, I don't want to say simplistic style, but the way he draws faces, there's something in the eyes. There's not necessarily a lot of line work, but it says so much with not a lot. And it's such a signature thing that I just, I just love. And I love his work. Uh, I, I love the work that he did on um, uh, Punisher uh, years back too. And but because I'm such a preacher fan, whenever I see his work, it always just, I, I always have a nostalgia because it brings me back it brings me back to Preacher. And sure. uh, yeah, yeah, and I just, yeah, I, I, I love his work. Yeah, I think, I think that what Dylan, um, the, 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 like you said, it's, I love that, that phrasing that it's a, it's a cheap way to make a movie. And I think, right, Dylan, it, I feel like these are storyboards. And, and, when, and again, we'll talk about the show in a little bit, but um, I think watching the show, the first season of the show, it's like, well, damn. You know, they just, they just took the comic and it's not in the way that Zack Snyder does it where Zack Snyder literally just takes the comic panel and just projects it onto the screen. They really use Dylan's setup, the way that, the way that he creates tension. And um, sometimes you'll see the same, 
the same scene from a different perspective. Uh, and, I, you know, in a flashback, you'll, we'll start, you know, they'll be talking. And then when they come back, they go to the flashback. When they come back, we see them in the same place, but now the air, air quotes camera is looking at them in a different way. And so um, you get a whole different view of how they're sitting and how they're leaning and who's where. And you're right, it is, it's, um, it is a cinematic artist. That's exactly what he is. And I think he tempers, again, that's why I keep coming back, is I think he tempers on us in the perfect way. Um, but again, I've not seen the script either. So I'm with you. If anybody out there can get us a link to some scripts of Preacher, uh, both Brad and I would uh, be keen to see that. Yeah, because it is a, it is a partnership. They both co-own Preacher. So, um, and I always love that. I love when artists and writers co-own the characters and are co-creators. That means so much more to me because the artist then can say no. The artist can say, you know, because at this time, you know, they were on equal footing as far as names in the industry. It wasn't like Garth Ennis pulled Steve Dillon out of, you know, obscurity and was like, hey, kid, come draw my comic. You know, they were, right, right. That, that comes through. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Even though this was my introduction to both of them. Sure. Uh, I think it was for a lot of people. people. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But they right they but they only got to do this because of their names because they yeah. they had they had some serious uh, credits behind them. Well, let's talk about. Um, I mean, again, we could probably spend an hour in the Steve Dillon podcast, but um, let's talk about the characters and his beautiful character work. Um, let's start with the. Um, we'll do the Holy Trinity, as it were, and then we can kind of talk about Sheriff Root and Arseface and um, uh, a little bit, you know, because we're only doing the first. Well, we'll do, you know, we're not going to go past issue 12. And because these characters are so interesting, um, you know, I think we may just end up talking about them. Who knows? But let's talk about um, uh, Tulip first. I love Tulip. Um, as a character, I think she really shines in a way that in the mid-90s uh, wasn't necessarily happening. She has so much agency. And even though the book is called Preacher and she's second billing in the book, it could easily be called Tulip. It's her story as much as it's anybody's. Um, what do you think about her? What do you think, how do you think Ennis does um, depicting her? Do you think it's a fair portrayal of, of a woman who's gone through the horrible things Tulip has gone through? Yes, I, I, she is a great character. And I think, uh, yeah, I think that Garth Ennis did do a good job of um, giving her agency. And one of the things that, that um, you know, she, I think she is the most important character in the book in a way because she, she makes Jesse work for it. Uh, you know, he is, he is very moral and he, and he has this code, but, he still has to earn her love. She, she doesn't give it out freely. And, you know, so he, he has to rise to the occasion to be with her. And I don't know if he would have had the entire motivation to see it all through if he wasn't trying to prove himself to her. And that makes her the driver of the entire story in, in, in a very important way. 
Yeah, it's like it's the anti-fridge, right? Instead of it being, well, we're going to take the woman you love away from you so that you're motivated. It's like the woman you love is right in front of you. And yeah. um, your motivation, like you said, is to get her back because Jesse has, has wronged her. And they've treated each other terribly, let's be frank. It's not all on Jesse. She's, no, she's not oh. a saint. But, but like you said, she doesn't every, she, she's not easily forgiving him. She knows exactly what he is, and she's not easily fooled. And I love that about her because it's an easy, lazy writing to say, have her just be like, oh, Jesse, and everything's fine. She's like, fuck off. You know, literally. Yeah. So I think that that is, is so smart. And while, yes, terrible things happen to her, uh, terrible things happen to them all. It's not like they're just making the woman the victim. You know, there's no damsel in distress. Half the time, she's got to save Jesse or try to save Cassidy right. his own stupidity or something. So, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, and so speaking of that, let's talk about Cassidy for a second and his own stupidity. Our Irish vampire, uh, Cassidy... What do you think about him? Uh, I, I, I love Cassidy. Um, and I almost, I think that, you know, as I was saying how Garth Ennis kind of used the series to deal with things in his own head, I think that he himself found, like he divided himself partly into Cassidy and partly into Jesse. Cassidy's more the off the rails, um, not so morally driven, uh, live in the moment, and yeah. and, and it's because he, he can be because he's a vampire, so he's not right. necessarily right. gonna die. So he can be that way. He can be totally crazy, and uh, you know, and it's just it it makes a cool foil to to Jesse, I think. And he's just he's just a fun he's just a fun character. I mean, there's just no getting around it. Uh, for all the deepness that you might find in the comic, I think that there is something to be said for just having a fun character and a fun part of the story, and and that's where Cassidy definitely comes in. Yeah, I think what it is, is what you just said. Every, even every Shakespearean drama has, a, has comic relief. Right, Falstaff, he's the most obvious one. And he's hysterical. Yeah. I mean, he's genuinely, I mean, he was so funny. He was so popular that he got his own play, right? Like he, he's, the, he's the fool who goes and, you know, he gets Mary Wives of Windsor, he gets no play. He's that popular, like, again, Cassidy spinoff series people would get because they love him um and I'm with you it's it's he's there to crack a joke and making him a vampire is so smart because as you said he's risk averse except for the sunlight which he's obviously he goes out of his way to hide a lot uh, under tarps and under cars and wherever he <laughs> um he uh he is he is us we're not vampires, but he's our avatar a little in this story. He's the mm -hmm. outsider who the stakes are low for him because he's lived, we learned later, way later, not in these 12 that we're talking about, but way later in the series, we learned, we see Cassidy's backstory, which is actually one of my favorite arcs is Cassidy's backstory uh, because it is, mm -hmm. it's, again, just like everything else, it's tragic. None of them have had great childhoods. And, um, and so for Cassie to be such a wise ass and to be so funny and flippant, it's, it's, you actually see his growth because he kind of comes across as like a petulant punk ass, but then you eventually learn he's not that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I, there was, there's a little part in my brain that at the end of the first 
issue, the first trade part of what we were discussing, where kind of Cassidy goes on his own. And a lot of the second trade is dealing with uh, backstory on Jesse and Tulip and, and all that. And it made me kind of wonder, was Cassidy supposed to just be in it for a little bit? And then as Garth Ennis started writing and started hearing feedback from fans that they decided to use Cassidy more. I was just curious about that. I mean, I don't think so, but it kind of could have gone either way. But I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, at the end of the day, I'm certainly glad that, that we got a lot more Cassidy. That's a great question. I didn't ever think about that. You know, it, because it is Bonnie and Clyde, right? That's the story he's telling. He's telling. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. And so there is no Cassidy. There's no, there's no vampire in Bonnie and Clyde. That's a duo. So that is a good uh, question. It could be. But I'm with you. I'm so glad he stayed because Jesse's not funny. And so, uh, and neither is Tulip. It's, uh, Tulip has some funny things that she says. Um, Jesse's only ever funny. I only laugh at Jesse when he's with Cassidy. The rest of the time, yeah. he's, not, he's not very funny. Yeah. He be? Yeah. Again, his life is horrible. Um, so, yeah, that's a great, that's great. If Again, listeners, if you know that answer, let us know. Uh, because that is so fascinating. I, I wonder. I mean, you know, you'd like to think somebody like, Garth has, has everything plotted out as what an epic writer he is, but you know, we all go where the fans want us to go, right? I mean, if, yep. if, if, every, if I started to get zero listens on this show, I'd have to be like, well, <laughs> maybe right. nobody, nobody wants to hear it anymore. So, um, and I think that every interview I've read with a writer ever, they always say that you could start out going in a certain direction but the characters kind of take over and before you know it complete, you know, something else completely different has happened. Uh, you know, like in Cujo, for instance, no, sorry for spoilers here, but the boy dies and right. um, somebody wrote to Stephen King, how could you kill that kid? And Stephen King's response was, I didn't, he just died. And I, th- and right. I think that this was such a story that was so close to uh, Garth Ennis's heart that it kind of went in certain directions. And and I think there is also something, like I was saying before, that I think that Garth Ennis kind of divided himself into these two characters. And I think that maybe at the end, he thought, well, I, this, this character, this part of me has more to say. And it just works better as a trinity than, than a duo. So I don't know. I, I just, you know, but it's just, it's just an interesting thing to ponder. Yeah, well, what I think works, too, is that by having the three of them, when Jesse later in the series goes off by himself, um, they're together. And sometimes, like you said, Cassidy goes off by himself. So Tulip and Jesse are together. And, and I think just giving them someone to talk to, it, it, it really, it's smart to- storytelling too, because then we're not full of random internal exposition. Because this book isn't really heavy on internal exposition. Steve Dillon does a lot of the storytelling. He shows us what's happening. And then they speak out loud. It's not a lot of then, you know, it's like. Right. And that's flash- exactly what makes it a cinematic story. Exactly yeah. why. Yeah, because the flashbacks happen. Instead of it being Jesse uh, explaining things to us, which is how the book starts. Honestly, it had been a while, so when I started reading it, I was like, wait a minute, this already happened. And I, but I knew that it already happened. So I forget mm-hmm. that it's a, it starts as a flashback. The, the, the story is happening ahead of where the action starts. It's such a yeah. serious way to start to drop us in. Yeah. And I forgot that because it had been a while. Because, you know, in your brain, you... Um, you know, if you don't read it for a while, if you were to tell someone the story, you wouldn't say, well, it starts at a diner. 
You'd be like, well, it starts yeah. in Texas. It's well, they're in Texas. It starts at the. It starts when Jesse does that, and you're like, oh shit, no, that actually already happened. We're by the time we meet Jesse, he's already had the. You know, he's already killed everybody. You're like, oh, great, I forgot that. That's where it started. Yeah, I, I would like to think that somewhere out there, there is a college course being taught by an adjunct professor on how to start a story, and they use the first issue of Preacher as a way of how, you know, as a guide, because he sets up everything in such cool and quick ways in that first issue. And part of that is just by being a flashback with them going over, okay, let's get caught up on where we are. Yeah. Cool way to start a story. It is really genius. It is really genius. But let's talk about Jesse Custer, our preacher, who is an abused child, um, who thinks his dad may or may not be John Wayne, who um, also wants to be John Wayne, maybe, who smokes and drinks and swears and um, punches people. Jesse Custer, our preacher. Um, and again, obviously, faith uh, is, is a big part of it. So let's talk about Jesse's background and Jesse's faith. And the most important question, Brad, do you think Jesse actually has faith? Oh, I think he, I think he definitely does. I, I think that if he did not have faith, he wouldn't have gone on the quest to find God in the beginning to begin to begin with. Um, yeah, there's, there's a scene where uh, Cassidy and Jesse are on the Empire State Building, and, and Cassidy says, "Do you think people are worth saving?" And uh, Jesse says, "Yes," which is really incredible from what they've already been through to that point and what they're yeah. going to go through further in the series. And he never wavers. So, and I think for that to be the case, he has to have faith. But, and this is the major, one of the major issues with this entire story is that what does faith mean? Because it is certainly not um, in terms of organized religion. It's something that has to be discovered inside. And that's one of Jesse's biggest struggles. That's why I think that's why he wants to find God because he does have that faith. He does have it. And he's going to say, okay, because I have this belief, I'm going to go find God and, and say, Hey, why, why did you abandon us? Because uh, that faith in humanity is there. And to a degree, I think to be that angry at God, you have to have faith in God as well. And the, there are a few characters that I've come across that are so morally centered as Jesse in a way. And he might be, he might be hard drinking, you know, hard living and willing to shoot people, but, you know, but he, is, he definitely has a moral compass. And that's, that's probably one of the biggest defining characteristics of the character, I think. Do you think that his abusive uh, childhood from his grand... So if you haven't read Preacher, seriously, what are you, what are you doing? Um, but if you're easily offended, <laughs> yes, it's maybe it's not for you. But so Jesse's... Um, Jesse's grandmother is like a voodoo priestess and she trained him and his cousins who are pieces of shit i hate them all um to essentially yeah. be psycho killers and they would just beat the shit out of him when he was a child he was locked in a box and thrown into the lake um he's they're awful so do you think they kill his dad they're just bad so do you think that all of that um, is why he has faith, like why he's a Christian and they're like these weird voodoo people, or is it like a reaction to his grandma, or do you think it's because he survived his childhood and he thinks 
that's like divine intervention that allowed him to survive his job? Yeah, I think it's a bit of both. I think that he, he looked up to his father so much and seeing what happened to his father and who was responsible. I think that maybe the faith in God came from that and as a reaction to everything he was being, you know, not taught but forced upon by his, his family after his, you know, dad died. And I think that the John Wayne part of it was um, definitely kind of a, a way of dealing with it. Yeah, yeah. Because do you think John Wayne's really there? Um, I, I, I think I, I think John Wayne is the actual voice of God in his head, not the God that you see being like a petulant child when he appears to all three characters at different points in the story. Right. I think that if you were going to find the true guiding voice of God, it would probably be uh, John Wayne in a way. Isn't that funny? Yeah. 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 yeah and that's so, just another genius point of his storytelling. No, it is. It really is. I think that, yeah, so everybody, so what happens is there's this, um, the love child, it's called Genesis, of a demon and an angel uh, escapes heaven by the worst babysitters in the history of the world, history of the universe, and it, it goes into Jesse's body, and so Jesse is now officially the word of God, so if Jesse tells someone to do something, they have no choice but to do it. Um, and what they discover is God has just abandoned humanity. He, God no longer has faith in humans, and so he's gone missing. So uh, that's, the, that's the plot after these first 12 issues, really, and you learn it in the middle of these 12 issues, that God has gone missing. And that's kind of the plot of the rest of the story, uh, Jesse and the team trying to get God to decide to come back to heaven. And I like that you say that the God that you meet in here is kind of a petulant child. He's, um, that is really a well, an excellent description so um, what did you think of that the first time that you see God talk to them? I think it's Tulip, right? When he brings Tulip back. Yeah, dead and Tulip is the first to meet. And if I was going to sum up these two trades and kind of uh, in the main character's reaction to, to God is, is cut the shit. Yeah. <laughs> uh, when, when the blank first appears, he comes as this like angel in the clouds. And the first thing Jesse says was cut the shit. Yeah. And when God appears to Tulip and he's, he's trying like to, glowing Jesus. Yeah. And yeah. he's saying, you know, I'll bring you back, but you got to tell Jesse to stop it. And she's like, cut the shit. Because basically you want, you want Jesse to stop because you're afraid of what's going to happen when he finds you because you're afraid of Genesis. And that's why you left him in the first place. So you you ran because you're scared and don't try to don't try to scare us when you're running away yeah don't blame us because that's the way right it's not our fault that you left it's your fault yeah yeah and it's it's um it's a it's quite the thing to do in a comic book <laughs> it's quite a thing to say like we're going to tell god to cut the shit and we're going to make God a character. Now, I've already covered on, on this uh, show, I covered uh, Mark Russell's genius Second Coming series, which again deals with some of these things in a slightly different way, but still also with plenty of uh, swearing and smoking and sex and everything. So um, what do you think about that kind of approach to religion? Because I agree with you. I think Jesse does have faith, and I think they all do in some way or another. I mean, um, Cassidy's Catholic, uh, and... He, I think even though he's a vampire, 
he still is, <laughs> and which I think is which is pretty fascinating. So, um, what is the you know why do you think anyone would want to tell a story about faith in such a dark way? Um, and do you think that again that was going back to my original question about the satire versus farce and how far is too far? Do you think they ran the risk of people missing their point here, or did they not care? I think he knew what he was what he was doing. Uh, you know, I, I think that he balanced it out because I think that you know, as far as what he's trying to say uh, about God is not necessarily about God, and it's not really necessarily about faith on a personal level. It is kind of what organized religion has propped up as the ideal of what God is. And religion is a human construct, so it is going to be flawed. Um, you, you want a relationship with God, I think you've got to go personal. You've got to have a personal relationship with God. And once again, I think this is what Garvin is, is doing. He is having, he's having a struggle of faith and trying to determine what what God is to him. It's not about does God exist. It's what is what is God as I can understand it and perceive it in the truest sense to myself. And he he's Irish and, and I don't know this for sure, but um, he's probably Catholic and I was brought up Catholic. So you know I, I think that every every Catholic goes through those kind of struggles. Because they, when you're a Catholic, they start you pretty early. And at some point, you have to uh, really dig through that to find the core of what it means to you. Uh, and that's what, you know, Catholics have confirmation when you are old enough to make your own decisions about, you know, about God. And you still want to be a Catholic, and then you get confirmed. And this is, this whole struggle with, with this whole story is, I think, Garthen is trying to say, do I want to be confirmed or what, you know, what is God, what is God's name? I think that's right. Yeah, that's solid. I was raised Catholic too. I understand almost everything you said. I'm like nodding. Yep. Yep. <laughs> it's, uh, it's one of those things. I work for a Catholic university now too, and I'm not, you know, I'm not on that team anymore. And they, they're cool with that. You know, they, they're a Dominican sister. So it's a different, different breed of Catholicism a little bit where they're much more understanding um, and I think that's I think that's the whole point here of this entire series but this first these first few arcs too is um, it's a literal quest for God where these these three are on a road trip but but the idea is the overarching theme is this is what you all have to do if you're going to if you're going to make the choice like you said if you're going to make the choice to have faith you're going to make the choice to believe you have to do the work. It's not something that's, it's, um, it's not supposed to just be something that is uh, passive. And I think at the very beginning of the book, when Jesse's a preacher in this Ansville and uh, before he kills everyone in town, um, he, you know, he goes into a bar and picks fights with people and tells everybody's deepest, darkest secrets. And the next day, the church is packed because yeah. He's like literally guilted them in, but up to that point, he would even say, like, you know, a handful of people, two or three people would come, and that'd be it, except they all would come in private because the hard work is, um, 
it's easy to just come sneak into the preacher's house and be like, oh, preacher, what should I do? And get some advice and then go away and not show up on Sunday or whatever. But it's hard to come out in front of everyone and, and acknowledge your uh, position. It's, um, and I think, I think what he's trying to say is, you know, to be and to believe in anything, whether it's religion, whether it's, you know, politics, but democracy, whatever kind of abstract concept in which you choose to believe, you have to work on it. It shouldn't just be something that you, if you actively pursue it, then you can have a richer understanding and it, it can mean more to you as opposed to just sitting there and observing right. it and saying, oh, I'm Catholic. It's like learning, right? When you, if you're, if you're going to learn something, it's better to be engaged than to sit in the back of the classroom and fall asleep. Yeah, I think there's something lazy about just taking everything at face value. I think, like you were saying, you have to work for it. And working for it does, does mean digging a little deeper than what you're kind of told on the surface. Oh, for sure. For sure. And this, and this book is full of digging. And, you know, again, it's been a while since I'd read it. And going back, and like you said, I totally forgot the way that it was done. Um, there's one more question I have about this storytelling. We haven't even talked about the saint. We should touch on him for a second. But what I love about this, and I write fiction too, um, and I, in the most recent novel I finished that I'm shopping around trying to find an agent right now, um, the comment I always have to, you know, when I explain it to people is like, there's a lot of sitting around. They sit around and eat a lot in my book because they're <laughs> out in the world doing stuff. And it makes more sense to get people to sit around and have a coffee or have a beer or whatever. To, they sit around a lot for a road trip series. Every issue, at least once, they're drinking or eating. Um, what do you think about that for it being such an action-packed story that Ennis takes the time to stop them? Did you, do you like that as storytelling, or do you find that, like, no, no, I want them to just always be on the move? I, I, really, I really like it because um, it's, a good, it's a good balance. Because, you know, kind of going back to, is it farce or is he really trying to say something? Those moments where they're sitting together and drinking those are the moments where he's really trying to say something. So you can have like, you know, the spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down. You can have those action scenes that are, that are the sugar, but those moments where they're sitting there talking, that's when they kind of get down, down to business. And that's those, that's those points that should really, those are those points that should really hit home with the reader for the deeper moments of what Garth Ennis was trying to say. Yeah, I agree. I think it's really great. And, and it's, it seems natural, too. I mean, you know, there's one whole scene where there's almost a whole issue where I just think it's Cass and Jesse playing pool. And like, Tulip took a shower in this issue of Preacher. So somebody laid down three bucks or however much it was back in the 90s, probably not that much, to watch a vampire, a preacher play pool and a woman, like, do her hair. But there's so much that happens in that issue. Like, you know, the action, it feels like that's absurd. Like, hey, I need my money back. But no, no, the plot moves. The story is moved yes. so far along in that. It's so smart. Yeah, and that's because he created some great characters that you don't mind if they're just sitting around talking. I think I did spend $3 on that issue, and I love, 
I loved every page. I didn't, you know, <laughs> even those moments when they're sitting around talking, I, it, the, the, yeah, you're right. The plot never slows down. You're always moving forward. You always want to know more about what's coming next and who these people are. And, and, and in a way, that's part of the, my major draw to the story is that those characters feel like friends. You almost feel like you're there having the beer, you're there playing pool, or you're there keeping Tula company while she does her hair. Um, yeah, these characters are just so expertly written and, you know, I'll probably say it a million times on this podcast, but Garth Ennis is a genius. Yeah, well, and, you know, the thing is, there's a few of, I agree with that sentiment. And so I feel like sometimes I hold him up to a really high standard. So when um, the things, there are some things he does that, he did a couple of years ago um, the six, the eight pack comic. It was like a, a short a six issue miniseries of his version of the hard traveling heroes um, and like the puppy welder and all that stuff. And it was really terrible. I was really disappointed. I was like, I reviewed that for the site and I was so sad because I was like, yep, yeah, I'm in, I'm in. Um, and I, and mm-hmm. I, and I wonder if it's because I knew uh, what he could do. And I'm like, you're more clever than this. You know, it's like, I felt, um, sometimes you hold people against their own greatness as it were. Have you ever felt that way with him or do you just love everything he does? Well, I, he, you know, it's kind of funny. There are certain writers, uh, like Alan Moore who generally for the most part, I love everything that they do. Garth Ennis is a little bit different. I can always respect the work he does, but some of it doesn't speak to me like, say preacher did or moments in the boys uh you know things like that like as as well written and well constructed as his war stories are and i know that he loves telling those tales and they're very interesting from a historical perspective they don't drive me to read them like uh preacher did and you know at the same time i was reading preacher i was reading hitman because they both came out yeah yeah and hitman was more of like the lighthearted, not so deep. And I still enjoyed it. And I still, his clever dialogue. But when I wanted to get to the meat and potatoes is always back to Preacher. That's, that will always be, you know, his masterpiece. Sure. No, I think that's true. That's fair. I think that's totally fair. And, and I think that's part of being a fan is you have to, you have to acknowledge the, uh, you can't just be blind to it, you know. Uh, you can't just say like, "Yep, I'm ride or die, no matter what." It, you know, some some things aren't great, and it's okay to say that. It doesn't mean you hate everything. You know, almost every album, like you buy an album, and well, I still do because I'm old and I still buy. You know, <laughs> I, I will still I don't necessarily buy CDs or or records anymore, but I you know will buy the whole album if I like a song or I like a I hear it and like, oh, I'll just buy the album, and then I own it. That it's mine. I don't have to stream it. I don't need the internet to hear it. I physically own it somewhere. Um, yeah. But I feel like there's almost, no matter how much I love an artist, every album has a dog. Every album is like, eh. Right. Yeah, yeah there's always, even on OK Computer, <laughs> there's a song that you're going to skip. Yeah. Right. My favorite <laughs> albums are always, it's always, it's always that way. Yeah, right. Yeah, that's, that's a great, that's a great point. And, and, uh, and again, like with them, with Radiohead, I, I'm one of those people who's like, they're okay. I get, I get what's good about OK Computer, but they're not like, one of my favorite bands of all time. And it's funny, I know a guy who he loves Radiohead, like he's Ryder Die for Radiohead. And he and I argue about Weezer because I give Weezer a pass. Like, I don't care what it is they do. I'm going to buy it. And yeah. I, as soon as the day it comes out without even hearing it. Um, 
and people are like, oh my God, only the first two bees are out. You know, so I feel like- Right, yeah, there's definitely that crowd. <laughs> yeah, so I feel like Garth Innes is that way though, like you said, like you were like, no, Hitman is good. Hitman is good. And a lot of his other stuff is good. I'm not, I'm just saying like- Oh yeah, I mean, I, you know, and I, you were right. I mean, not all necessarily just because it's Hitman is going to be good either, even though I liked Hitman, there's going to be, there's going to be hits or misses. And quite frankly, even in Preacher, there was hit or misses for me because it's not that I would skip it and I still love it, but it, it's not my favorite part is the whole, his whole, I mean, this is not what we're talking about, yeah, but his, no, his, yeah. his time in salvation was kind of my least favorite part of the story. I agree. Yeah, yeah. I get that. Yeah, I think, well, I don't like Jesse by himself. Right, and I think maybe that's what slowed it all down. Yeah, I did, it really, it, it um, like I said, he needs somebody to talk to. He's not John Wayne. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. He wants to be, he, he needs somebody to talk to. And I get, I get why it happened the way that it did, for sure. But I agree. Um, well, let's talk about the sort of villain of this story, and then we can talk about the show a little bit and tie it. We've gone an hour, I feel like, and we've only touched on two things. But that's the beautiful thing about this show. And about hopefully we just get people interested and they're like, holy shit, what is this crazy show? And, yeah, oh, yeah. yeah. Crazy book. Um, the villain is not really the, I don't know, is, is the saint the villain? So the saint of all killers is brought, um, is called by the angels to stop the preacher from finding God. Um, is the saint the villain? Is Jesse the villain? Who's the, is, or is there no villain? I think that, uh, I think that the saint is a stand-in for a villain in these first couple arcs um i think his role changes as the story goes on um but i i think that it, it's hard to make a compelling villain that that's that is that powerful so we had to be something different than simply a villain and maybe that is one of those things that kind of developed as garth was writing it maybe he intended at the beginning to have the Santa Killers be, you know, the main villain, the big bad, but he turned it into something completely different. Um, I mean, Santa Killers is just a complete force of nature. And just slightly stepping away from, you know, the arcs that we're talking about, but you'll see just how much of a badass he is when you see what happens when he goes to hell and his whole backstory is just yeah. absolutely insane. And, you know, you don't have that kind of, pity for him that you didn't have to know his backstory so he's just like in, in these two arcs he is just a complete force of nature that in, in a way would almost be impossible to stop luckily jesse has the word that seems to at least save them at least once with the santa killers as, this, as these two arcs go on but um it's almost like he's something bigger than a, a simple villain Right. Well, and he is, and it's his tragic backstory that I think once you learn it, it you know, because I'm not reading it this time, I can't unknow what I know. Um, whereas yeah. the first time you read it, he is definitely set up to be the, the baddie. He's here to stop Jesse and Tulip and Cassidy on their quest. And it turns out he is um, the immovable object. Literally, there's a scene in right. that, it's probably my favorite panel, when... <laughs> Cassidy tries to run him over with this truck. Yeah. <laughs> I, I love that. It's especially, yeah, it's so especially because, yeah, especially it's because, you know, at that point in the story, Jesse had said, get out of here to, 
to Cassidy, you're an abomination. Right. And Cassidy still comes back and goes and rams a freaking car into the guy to try to save Jesse. So even with things weren't the best between them, you can still see that friendship developing. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, that was that's and what doesn't he say? I'm here to rescue you or something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And and another thing I think that is so as far as villain goes in the story, that is so great. I, I, there was a, a quote that they used to put on the trades, and I'm not sure who said it. It might have been Kevin Smith, but he said, rarely is it this much fun to watch the good guys kick ass. And that is so true, because usually I'm a big fan of the villain. I think that when, when, you, when you have a story, you're only as strong as your villains. This flips that on his head, because... The, the villains, in a way, what they face, except for the saint, if you're going to call him the villain, are not that strong. And they just tear through them, even if it's um, uh, Jody and TC. Um, right. Jody yeah. is probably the most imposing at that point. But these are good guys that do kick ass, and it is fun to watch them kick ass. Yeah, I think it's I, – I agree. And um, that's why I asked, is Jesse the villain? It depends on how you look at it. You know, um, it's, 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 he's, uh, he's not an anti-hero. Jesse is his, is his, the hero in his story, but you know, he's easily, if you look at it from like a traditional perspective, Jesse's the bad guy, <laughs> you know, he yeah. terrible things. He kills people indiscriminately sometimes. Um, yeah. and so, yeah, it, it, and the saint is trying to stop him. So in theory, if you were to describe that, there's a crazy preacher who destroys his entire congregation and there's a, there's a being from the depths of hell who's, or the depths of somewhere coming to stop him. You'd be like, oh, that's the good guy. But no, like you said, it's completely flipped upside down. And, um, yeah. yeah, it's so, it's so fun. Um, when I, uh, you know, it's hard to read sometimes, but it is, it's, it's fun in that you, if you like, if you want to spend your time thinking, this is not a quick read. Uh, in any stretch of the imagination, if you're going to read this, you need to give it your attention. Don't half-ass this. Because I think rereading it again this time, I'm like, oh, like I said, not only did I forget the brilliant way it's told, there's just stuff you forget. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I think one of those things was those, like I was saying, with the kind of camera angle thing, just oh. the way that was used so much, really, really stood out to me this time. And I think that that was one of the things that subconsciously really drew me to the story. Yeah, no, I think that's right. I think, again, like you said, nobody else but Steve Dillon could have done it. And he, he, he compels us to turn the next page. He, um, yeah, it's just, it really is. It's, it's just stunning to look at. Um, but I would be remiss, and I know the guys on the movie part, that's Chris and Dave, the flagship uh, Comics in Motion show, haven't covered Preacher yet. So maybe I'll try to convince them to like do pilot on the same week this comes out, which will be in a few oh, nice. down in July. We'll see what we can do. But um, so it was at AMC did the show um, with a Dominic Cooper, who most people know as um, young Tony Stark's dad, right? Howard Stark, yeah. young Howard Stark. Mm -hmm. um, as Jesse Tulip O'Hare is played by Ruth Nega. So they, you know, she's a woman of color in the show. And honestly, I think Ruth Nega's a fantastic actor. I liked her before. Um, this so seeing her in this I was like oh she eats it up and then Joseph Gilgun plays Cassidy um, I think it's great uh, what I saw I've only seen the first two seasons um, what did you think of it you know um, I, I, I the risks that they took on that first season I really 
ad, admire the balls on Seth Rogen and, and Goldberg because the, the first season almost ends where the comic book begins. Yeah. And to, to put this out, <laughs> when, when you have all, when, when this is a book that is so beloved and they want to see that on the screen and you take them in completely different directions and it kind of was like, what are they doing with this season? So I really, I really liked it for what it was. And, um, I, I really, I, I love the cast. Uh, I think they all did a great job. And I, I, Dominic Cooper had to grow on me a little bit because I always, there was something about him that's not physically imposing. And I always had Jesse in my mind a little more, um, I don't want to say bigger, but um, I, I, I don't know. But but Dominic Cooper, can't, you know, it ended up being great. And I, I agree, Ruth Nega was great. Like, I, I loved her tulip. And, and Cassidy, I mean, that could make his career, feel good's career. Yeah. If, you know. um, and I, I love that they were able to, to complete the story, that they didn't get canceled, that they were at least able to complete the story. So no matter what happens, we do have a live action version of Preacher because, man, that got stuck in development hell for so long. I mean, I, I think there was a point when I would be scouring the web every day for information because it went, you know, it went every day. I mean, Kevin Smith had it for a little while. And then uh, the director of um, the ghostwriter, Gray, I forget his last name, Johnson, maybe. He, I thought he had, even though you may not like Ghost Rider, I thought he had a kind of a cool idea for the show. So he was such a fan. He wanted to do, um, like, every episode was a, a, an issue of the comic. And oh, I thought that oh. would have been, yeah, I thought that would have been cool. And what we got was completely different, but it still was good. And I'm so glad that it got made. I mean, when they first dropped that trailer, I about lost my mind. Um, yeah. You know, uh, yeah. And, um yeah, I, I have I have no complaints with the series. I really yeah, I've only seen the first the first two seasons, so that's a, that's a, something I need to correct. Um, I really enjoyed it. It wasn't something that I didn't want to keep watching it. It was just one of those things where it's like life happened, and I think there was a gap between season two and three. Yeah, there was. I think there was a pretty big gap between yeah a couple and, of the seasons. Yeah, yeah. And, that, and, and that which is going to happen because it's a small show on AMC, and and they have other things to do. And Ruth Nega, I mean. She got nominated for an Oscar for um, Loving versus Virginia, or Loving, the true story. And, right, yeah. And she's, she's so good. And she, this, the reason I love her as, as Tulip, and I agree with what you're saying about Cooper, it, it took a minute. I, I like him as an actor, I think, overall. I mean, he's, he's, he's pretty talented. You know, he's in those Mamma Mia movies, too. And it's like, dude, you can do a little bit of everything. You can sing and dance. Yeah. So I appreciate, like, a Renaissance man. But um, because I, like I said at the beginning, I think this could easily, this book could have just been called Tulip. It didn't have to be called Preacher. It's Tulip story. And I think what they do in the show by having Ruth Nega, she's, you can't help but have the camera be drawn to her. And she steals every scene that she's in. And she's not a big woman. She's small. Um, and And the camera, like she steals the scenes from them. And it just, she commands I don't know what she's doing. She's just a really good actor, but I think every time she's on screen, she's commanding your attention and, and Cassidy and Jesse can't help but follow along. So the energy, the, the character that they created, that Dylan and, and Ennis created, comes to life in her. So good. It was such great casting. And I agree the balls that, that Rogan and Goldberg had. Um, people who don't know, that's Seth Rogen, the, the comedic actor and his, his producing partner, uh, Evan Goldberg. And they... Um, 
they championed this. They directed half of the first season themselves. Mm-hmm. And they, they're the executive producer. So I think that's what it was, is ultimately they, they literally put their own money down to make this happen. And I think a good rule of thumb when it comes to these shows and movies that are based on comics, that they always, always turn out better when the people behind it are a fan of, uh, you know, of the material. And, uh, you know, Seth Rogen and Adam Goldberg had talked for a while about how they were uh, very big fans of the book. And I think that if you're not a fan of the material, it's just going to, it's going to absolutely suffer and it's going to be noticed. And, they loved it and that love shined through oh without a doubt without a doubt and you know what's funny as i was just looking i was just clicking on things because i didn't realize i I went to the imdb page uh, while we were talking and it turns out that the the irish film and television um have an emmy the irish film and television awards and ruth (laughs) was nominated for lead actress two years in a row oh yeah yeah she deserves it she didn't win i know but you know what's so infuriating is if comic book shows were taken seriously, she would have won something for them. Yeah. And yeah. D'Onofrio would have won for season one and three of Daredevil. Like, oh, yeah, absolutely. I, but but they, those shows are not... When I saw season one of Daredevil, and I, I, I well, Vince D'Onofrio just won a Golden Globe and an Emmy. That just happened. Yeah. He didn't yeah. Right. Yeah. And then I saw this and I thought, oh, Ruth Nega is just going to get nominated. She's because I thought it was the year that season one came out, the same year that Loving came out. I thought, well, she's going to be nominated for an Oscar and a Golden Globe, yeah. and an Emmy, right. you know, an Oscar for that show, <laughs> and a Golden Globe, and then an Emmy and a Golden Globe for this. Nope. And it was just mind blowing. I I don't know if it's just people see comic book shows and so they don't take it seriously. But you know, there's been two Oscars given out to people who played the Joker, so it's not as though. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, I think we're coming around, uh, but I think that it's going to take a little while. But the more Jokers that get nominated and things like that, I think that um, that you'll see more and more of that happening. And it's just, it's one of those things where I think some of the trailblazers don't get recognized. That's true. And, and Ruth Negan might be, you know, might be one of those. It's, it's, it's such, there's so much based on comics these days that it's almost impossible not to have something be recognized not only that i think there's more um, respect for the medium now than there's than there's ever been yeah that's true and they're just making right and there's just better stuff better stuff is is, is it's higher quality too it's not yeah. just um you know the roger corman fantastic four which is lovable for its own reasons or <laughs> um you know you're right that's that's fair that's really fair. It's just, it is high quality stuff. And, you know, I'm, I'm thrilled. I'm with you. I'm glad that they got its full run. That means I can go and binge it now and finish it up. And, um, and I would recommend anyone to read it and watch it and do anything with creatures. So um, we talked for an hour and 25 minutes and barely scratched the surface. So Brad, <laughs> please, uh, thank you, first of all, for coming. Sure, uh, thank you. Um, I will, the intro music will be, um, you know, I'm going to play some songs from the show, the intro and outro music. I'm just going to play some music from the show Preacher because there's great music. Um, yeah. Like a Western, for sure. So tell everybody how we can all find you on the internet webs. I will link to all of your socials and to your writer's page at DCN, of course, but I'm an audio learner. So please tell everybody how they can find you. Sure. You can find me on the um DC Comics News Podcast and on the Harley Quinn Mad Love Podcast. Uh, you can find me writing news and reviews on uh, DCComicsNews.com. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter uh, at 
uh, Flicky B1. Uh, that's uh, F, like Frank, I-L-I-C-K-Y-B, and the number one. Nice. Excellent. Well, and your good follows and the shows are fun and the Harley Quinn cast, which there will have been a trailer for that before we started the show. So everyone will know right from the beginning that that is a mature audience is because the trailer that El Stevo sent me, you guys are just saying fucking shit. And I do not fuck bats. Who was that? Did Kelly say that? Or was that she? Who said that? In there? Yeah, we had fun. Kendra. That was funny as hell. I love that. Um, yeah. So it's a podcast that is, uh, um, that represents the show that you're reviewing. There's, there's yeah, there's, right, <laughs> exactly. So, so the final question before I let you go that I ask everyone is, um, if you could hand this book to either one person in particular or a type of person, who to whom do you recommend? Or you've got the original trade or you've just got the whole series of Preacher and you're like, sure, I've got 150 bucks to burn. Here's the entire collection of Preacher. I'm handing this to you. Who do you give it to and why? Oh man, that's a good, uh, that's a good question. Um, I, I always, I always like that idea whenever I meet somebody that I know is going to be important to me and I want to share stuff that I love, Preacher always comes up. So I would almost say that somebody that I would meet new into my life that I really had a connection with, I would say, oh, you got to check this out. If you want to know about me, you know, things that I love, check this out. Um, and in a broader sense, maybe maybe somebody who is going through their own struggles with faith. Um, I, I think this would be a a good roadmap to kind of working your way through it. Yeah. Oh, I, that's excellent. I think that's totally true. Um, because yeah, they're literally on a journey to find God, and um, if that's a journey you're on or a journey you're you're leaving, it's still worth reading. I think. You don't have to be a believer to find uh, enjoyment in this and something to think about. So that's when you know something's good is that no matter what your background is, you'll find something, you'll get something out of it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, so again, thanks, Brad. This has been a joy. Um, I hopefully you'll no, thank you. again at another time. We'll talk something sure. else. Indeed. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, maybe sticking with Garth Ennis and doing the boys, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. I'd definitely be down for that. <laughs> yeah. Cause that actually started as a DC comic. So that's, but I'm going to count that as an indie cause it's at dynamite now. And um, yeah. the show comes out in September. So maybe we'll look at like doing sure. uh, like something late September. You'll come back on. We'll talk to the boys. Um, if you're down, that would be fun. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay, cool. So, um, well, if anybody wants to follow me, I'm at Tricycle Blue Box, or you can go to my website, arfarina.com. And please make sure you uh, subscribe uh, to the Comics Emotion Podcast and leave us a review. And it turns out the more reviews we get, the more likely, like, I guess, it turns out if you're a movie review podcast, which we have one of those on our network, the uh, flagship, the more reviews we get, we, we could actually review movies on Rotten Tomatoes, which would be super cool. So uh, please leave us a review, even if you're like, eh, it doesn't matter. The more reviews we get, the better. So do that for us. I appreciate everybody, and I will see you next time. Jesus Someone to hear your prayers Someone who cares Your own Personal Jesus 
Someone to hear your prayers Someone who's there Feeling unknown and you're all alone Flesh and bone by the telephone Lift up the receiver, I'll make you a believer Take second best, put me to the test Things on your chest, you need to confess I will deliver, you know I'm a forgiver Reach out and touch faith Reach out and touch faith Your own personal Jesus Someone to hear your prayers Someone who cares Your own personal Jesus Someone to hear your prayers, someone to care. Feeling unknown and you're all alone, flesh and bone by the telephone. Lift up the receiver, I'll make you a believer. I will deliver, you know I'm a forgiver. Reach out and touch faith. Reach out and touch faith. Reach out and touch faith. Reach out and touch things.